Will you bow with me in a word of prayer? Blessed Father, we thank you for the time uh, of your word. We thank you for the fact that you did not leave us in a void. You did not leave us with nothing, but you've given us your word. Help help us now to, to be focused and fixated upon it. Help us to be those who seek to glean from it and seek, and seek to learn from its pages, seeing to how, looking to put into practice what we learn, that we may be more than simply hearers but doers also. Father, we just pray that indeed keep distractions at bay, keep tiredness at bay. Father, even with this heat, the distraction of heat, we pray that indeed that this will not avail upon us too much. So, Father, we just pray for these things in your blessed name. Amen. So I'm just going to reread just the verses uh, for this particular sermon uh, again. So feel free to grab your Bibles and keep them open And as we go through verses 14 and 19 together. And so Matthew 9, verse 14. Then John's disciples came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unstrung cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, the Judaism of the New Testament period was one that was heavily regulated. It was They had a lot of regulations involved. There were, some have estimated, 613 laws and commandments to be observed within Old Testament Israel. And there were also... On top of that, so if you don't think 613 laws and commands were enough, on top of that, there were also a variety of different Pharisaical traditions, such as those in the Mishnah, that added further regulations to the life of the Jews who were seeking to be faithful. Now, these additions in the Mishnah were only added in order to provide clarity what they perceived needed clarity as to God's commandments. They were supposed to aid in just making it easy for people to understand what God, how to observe God's laws and the differing aspects and how God's laws were meant to be applied to their lives. But instead of doing that, they actually ended up providing tens, if not uh, tens of thousands, if not well, thousands, if not a ten of thousands of new commandments to the back to the backs of the Jews of that period. Now, one example, one clear example of that is the Sabbath. Because when it came to the keeping the Sabbath holy, which is, again, a, it's a law and a commandment given by God to Israel, it was understood, of course, that the Jews were not to work on the Sabbath. However, this was further clarified by rabbis from the Old Testament time leading into the New Testament, by rabbis, by Jewish teachers, to involve 38 categories of what work meant. Each of these categories of what work meant 
also had subcategories as, and extended to things such as how, how many steps you could walk in a day or how many letters you could write on a day, on a day. For the Jews that lived during the time of Jesus and his disciples, if one sought after God, if one was a zealous Jew who wanted to faithfully follow God, it was believed at that time that it was done so not just by faithfully following the commandments, but also through these various interpretations of them. And this, this had the tendency to lead Judaism to, to be very, very much an outward religion based on actions, based on performances, and not inward spirit and character. Not saying that it was how it was meant to be, but that's what it became. And so as we return to the Gospel of Matthew this morning, we see that after rebuking the Pharisees, who questioned why did Jesus spend such time, amount, amount of time with those who were seen as morally decrepit, with those who were so visibly sinners? Why would he spend so, why is he spending time with that, them? After rebuking the Pharisees, Jesus then turns, uh, is approached by the disciples of John the Baptist. Now, some commentators, when they look at the account uh, in another of the synoptic gospel, uh, gospels, that of Luke, uh, feel that it's likely that the, the disciples of John were put onto Jesus by the Pharisees. That may be true, but to, the, that, they, that they were kind of put on, uh, uh, told to kind of, hey, why don't you bring up to Jesus why his disciples aren't fasting? Because, you know, we fast and you guys fast, so go, to, go ask him. Now, again, that's a possibility, but regardless if that's true, what is true? from what we see at the start of this passage, is that John's disciples held as much to the common practice of Judaism of that day as, as did the Pharisees, which was common fasting. And so they, they approached Jesus and they asked him uh, as to one of the main differences between them and the, and the disciples who were following Jesus. And we see that in verse 14. Why? Why do we and the Pharisees fast often? But your disciples do not fast. Now, coming from the Pharisees, this might have been a pointed question. You know, going, oh, look, we're so, fa we're so faithful to God and you guys certainly aren't. But coming from the, John's disciples, this may have been an innocent inquiry as to how, we're, we're doing the common practices of the day, but you guys aren't. Just wondering what's up with that. Again, what we know from John, uh, John's disciples was that, indeed, from this text itself, that they were fastidious. They were, they were committed to fasting. They were committed to a practice which was believed to help one draw close to God in helping them seek the face and the presence of God. It was seen, fasting at that time was seen as a discipline which denied the flesh and allows one to focus on strengthening the spirit. Thus, for, one, for someone that was being perceived as a teacher of God, the lack of Jesus' disciples fast, actually fasting at all must have gripped them. 
Why aren't they fasting? They, they, Jesus is this teacher of God, but his disciples aren't seeking to seek God. They aren't seeking to, to be in God's presence. They aren't seeking to deny the flesh and focus upon God. Why aren't they doing that? Because, see, the, John, the, the disciples of John fasted often. Again, we see this in the text. And we know that through, uh, through contemporary sources, we know that it was common for pious Jews at this time to fast twice a week, every Monday and Thursday. And now this was, of course, this regular fasting was in addition to, to other fasting on other solemn occasions. But fasting often was seen as a right behavior for the model Jew. And such behavior, unfortunately, had a tendency to be boasted of. This is why, if you remember the, par- the parable, Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you might remember what the, the Pharisee actually boasts of. He goes, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything I have. Yet the reality is, even through Judaism of the New Testament, held to, a common, uh, held to this practice of common fasting, regular and constant fasting, fasting is only prescribed in the Old Testament, to do once a year. And that's in Leviticus 23, where it says, On the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. You are to hold a sacred assembly and practice self-denial. You are to present a food offering to the Lord. Now, fasting this was taken as this self-denial on the day, on the day of atonement. So the day of atonement happened once a year, and in preparation of the day of atonement, you would deny yourself, which was believed to be fasting. You would fast before the Day of Atonement. But again, fasting was only prescribed by God once a year. But this is an example and should hopefully illustrate where New Testament Judaism was at the point when Jesus was there. Often we call this Second Temple Judaism. After you know the destruction of the First Temple, this is the return of the Jews after exile and leading all the way up to Jesus' ministry. But again, this is an example how man-made traditions had been added to God's commands at this point. But note Jesus' response to John's disciples from verses 15 to 17. Jesus said to them, Can a wedding guest be sad while the groom is with them? The time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one patches an old garment with unshrunk cloth, because the patch pulls away from the garment and makes the tear worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the skins burst, the wine spills out, and the skins are ruined. No, they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, to start with, I just want to outline that Jesus is not denying the validity of fasting. Now, I want to put that in the, in just right in the forefront. He's not, did not denying the validity of fasting, even fasting which is beyond the day mandated by God. And I will seek to return to this point later. However, what he does here is he seeks to correct the understanding of John's disciples who failed to grasp they failed to grasp the gravity of their, leader, uh, their leader's past statements. That's the statements made by John the Baptist about Jesus. 
Because in effectively in verse 15, he's using a parable to explain why fasting for his own disciples is inappropriate. It's not right for his disciples to fast because he's there with them. And for, because for you see, as, as we mentioned before, fasting helps, uh, was believed to help one become closer to God, to seek him. And if that was the case, then how could the disciples seek to fast when God was in their midst, when Jesus was in their midst? They did not need to seek God through fasting, for he was already with them. Furthermore, outside of regular fasting, fasting was also often used during, again, a time of, uh, um, times of solemnity, such as a time of mourning during funerals and so forth. But presently, because Jesus was with his disciples, it was a time of celebration for his disciples. It was an inappropriate time to fast. Not only was God with them, but this wasn't a time of mourning. That Yes, true, Jesus says, there will be a time where he will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. But that time has not yet come. And so presently, it is a time of celebration. And so Jesus, in his first illustration here, he, he, he paints the picture that if they were the friends of the groom, and, being, and if they were with the groom during the wedding, would they mourn? I mean, think about it, brothers and sisters. If, if this was a wedding, if you were invited to a wedding, but not only that, not only that, you were invited as a friend of the groom, and then to actually to actually do a particular role in that church which supported the groom, would you find see yourself going, oh, but I'm going to mourn while I'm here. So you know, why is this, this joyous wedding? I'm going to dress all black. You know, maybe put a uh, you know if you're uh, you know put, uh, put uh, my mourning clothes on and just be at that wedding. Of course, it would it would strike up a particular a particular ridiculous sight. Because that's what it means here when it talks about the whole idea of wedding guests. Literally, it is talking about those who are close to the groom, who are who are invested in the wedding. And in that case, if you're so invested, who would in their right mind would mourn during such an occasion? Yet, as we say, Jesus does say that there will be a time of mourning for his disciples. And of course, when Jesus does this, he's speaking prophetically. He's talking about his pending death. Jesus talks about a time that the groom himself, which is himself, will be taken away. Where a time where fasting will be appropriate. But it is not yet. Instead, Jesus seeks to provide two additional illustrations. Whereupon he states in verses uh, 9, 16 to 17, I won't read it again, but again, by all means, uh, please feel free to read it. It talks about the, the using of a patch, an unstrunk piece of cloth on an old garment, and of course, trying to use new wine in, into an old wineskin. It is through these examples, these two examples, that Jesus is making it precisely clear what is being celebrated? Because he's comparing two things in both of these examples. He's comparing old and new. Old and new. 
And Jesus is comparing by doing so this old and new in the context of fasting. He's comparing the Jewish religious system with what he has come to do. And namely, he does so by illustrating exactly what he hasn't come to do. Again, as we look at the first illustration, for example, regarding the garment, uh, the, uh, the old garment and the unstrung cloth. Well, no one in their right mind, if they knew what they were doing, of course, when it says, when Jesus is saying no one would, let's face it, we, we are, we're humans, we know that there are probably people out there who would do this. But this is, this is of course, talking about those who rightly understand what they're doing. And if you rightly understood what you're doing, you understood textiles and clothes, you, you know you wouldn't put an unstrunken piece of cloth onto an old garment which has been worn many times because once that goes into the wash for the first time and it shrinks, it'll tear the piece of clothing. But no one, if they knew what they were doing, would do this. Why waste a piece of clothing. Likewise, in the next illustration, no one in their right mind would put new wine into an old wineskin. Because why, why, why? Because it would ruin both. Because when you're putting new wine into a wineskin, that wine isn't already fermented. You put it into that wineskin and that's when it ferments. And so what happens is if you put a new wine which is going through fermentation into an old wineskin. Wine now, an old wineskin, again, wineskins were made of leather, right? They're made, or they're made of animal skin, and as animal skin gets old, it gets particularly uh, in a way where it can't mold anymore. It has molded as far and stretched as far as it can, and now it's molded to that. It can't stretch it any further. And so if you have a piece of, uh, if you have a piece of, if you have an old wineskin and then it's already stretched out as much as it can, and then you're putting new wine in there which needs to ferment and needs to shape and, and, and will again change the, uh, change the, the volume of the wineskin, that, that old wineskin's going to burst. Instead, what, what Jesus is saying here, the practice of the day is that you get new wine, uh, you get new wine and you put it into a fresh piece of le- animal leather. And that will mold, because that's new, and that's gone through the process of tannery that will mold and be able to uh, be able to take, um, take into equation the fermenting wine. And by doing so, you keep both the wineskin as well as the wine. But no one in their right mind, no one who's involved in winery, would seek to put new wine into an old wineskin because you would lose both. So again, Jesus is using two examples here of what people certainly would not do because it would ruin the old uh, piece of garment. Now, is he, so Jesus is saying he hasn't come simply to fix old things, to use old things. Jesus hasn't come, he's saying here, he has not come to repair, he has not come to revamp, or, and he has not come to reinstitute the old covenantal system which is the old garment or the old wineskin here. It has not come just simply to fix these things. No, what Jesus is doing is something completely new, as, is, as he alludes to at the, end of the, the, at the end of the illustration of the wineskins, the fresh wine or the new wine into the fresh wineskins. Now, Jesus had, is, was doing something completely new 
right? It was doing something completely new and not something which was just something new within the confines of that system. Now, Jesus is saying here that the old ways that existed, the old ways which, which it was prevalent at the time of his arrival, will not do. They cannot contain, they cannot take into account what Jesus is doing. In his ministry, the old covenantal system about Israel and again all the sacrificial systems and all the laws and regulations and practices do not relate to what he is now doing. The old covenantal system had its day, it had its purpose, but now Jesus was doing something new. Something new was being ushered in, brought in. And Jesus is, again, right here, Jesus had come to inaugurate his kingdom. He had come through his ministry to institute a new reality. Where, again, there could be found newness of life for all those who followed him. Jesus had brought freedom to all of those who followed him from any ensnarements and any trappings, from any religious systems, from any works, from any traditions of men. And so when the question here of his disciples and their lack of fasting arose, Jesus, the way that Jesus answers them is that his disciples are there and they're celebrating being part of this new reality of what Jesus is doing. A new reality of being within God's presence, which is not based on external rituals or practices, but upon a new inward reality that is affected and based upon himself. Now, what does that mean for fasting? Well, fasting, because it was part of a regular Jewish observance. In fact, fasting was alongside almsgiving, and prescribed prayers was seen as one of the three regular duties for Jews of this time period. Outside of the commandments given by God, these were the three things that you would do to show that you are a pious and faithful Jew of Second Temple Judaism. And Jesus is saying that, again, fasting as being representative of this old system has no place within the requirements of his system. It has no requirements within the place of his new reality. Now, whilst this speaks first and foremost to the old covenantal system, again, we, we live as being part of the new covenant, do we not? We, the old covenant has passed away. The new covenant is here. And so as such, as, we, as this speaks, these, these verses, as Jesus responds to the, the disciples of John, about, um, again, not, this not regarding, this doesn't relate to the old covenantal system and, and that the fact that the old covenantal system does not have a place for believers today. This passage here also serves as a reminder of the distinctiveness of Christianity and the reality of what Christ has brought in. You see, when... The prophets of the Old Testament, when the prophets of the Old Testament, including John the Baptist, because again, John the Baptist was the greatest of the old, right, as Jesus said. When they, when the, old, the prophets of the Old Testament, they emphasized that the, is, the old covenantal system 
was ultimately still about the heart. Yes, it had outward actions. Yes, it had outward regulations and commandments. But at, the, but at its innermost core, the old covenantal system was still dependent upon one's heart. This is why so often Israel in the Old Testament was rebuked time and time again because whilst they were doing outward practices, their heart remained far from God. And whilst that was certainly true, and, and, uh, and while that was certainly true, there was a tendency under the old covenant and its administration to, for individuals to hide behind their external behaviour, to hide behind their external works. Because whilst God did always desired mercy, he always desired a contrite heart, not simply sacrifices, not simply outward actions. Yes, these were important, but that wasn't the point. You could do these activities, but if the heart was not there, it was useless. This is what the prophets kept reminding the nation of Israel. But because there was so much outward activities that needed to be done, there was a tendency for many within Israel to hide behind the external actions, the external activities. The irony of this is that while the irony of this is that they thought they believed in their minds that they were faithfully following God despite their hearts not being close to him. Their hearts were far away from him. And they thought that what was sufficient was the activities they were doing. The the relevant box-ticking exercises were enough. But the reality is the old covenant ended up being a testimony against those who acted like this. The old covenant ended up being a ministration of death against many who simply believed that by doing outward actions it would be sufficient for them to be right with God. They thought themselves righteous by their own hands. They weren't because they failed to understand the importance of having the right heart with God. They believed the works of their hands, the traditions they upkept, that would make them squared with God despite the distance, despite the wickedness of their own hearts. And the reality is this is why when Jesus came and he sees the old old covenantal system as it's represented within Judaism of his day. He sees that in so many respects, a lot of it is no better than hypocrisy. Which is why Jesus constantly, time and time and time again, rebukes and condemns that type of behavior. Because they say they're faithful, and they, they do the outward activity, but their behavior and the spirit behind it is not there. When they gave alms, this is quoting John MacArthur, but when they gave alms, they blew trumpets in the synagogues and in the streets in order to be honoured by men. When they prayed in the synagogues and on the street corners, they did so to be seen by men. And when they fasted, they put on a gloomy face and neglected their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Judaism of that day had fallen into a system which was entirely based on one's external activities. Not saying that's what it was meant to do, but that's what it had become for so many. However, what Jesus has done here, and what Jesus is saying 
by responding in such a way to the disciples of John is that he brings freedom from ceremony, from rituals, from those who follow them. He brings freedom to those who repent and believe and who, and who follow him. He saves those uh, and he saves people who follow him from outward trappings in thinking that external actions can save us or merit us to, to somehow be closer to God. No, Jesus has come to bring freedom here. But the reality is, so many men keep trying based on their own works, based on their own behavior, based on their own, their own thinking. They believe that they can somehow find justification in their own hands. That despite the fact that Jesus brings freedom, they rely on self-salvation. Whether it's when we look into our, the world around us today, because this isn't only limited to, the, to again, New, uh, New Testament Judaism, no, this, there is so much around in the world, brothers and sisters, when we look out in the world, we see so many people caught up in the trappings of ceremony, of rituals, of thinking that their works will lead them to a right relationship with God when it won't. Whether it's the trappings of sacramental Catholicism, that in order to be saved is not simply justification by grace through faith in Christ alone, but it requires other activities in order to be made right with God, that the faithful adherence to sacraments and other practices which help justify, which helps us bring that relationship with God. But even if you look at almost every Christian cult out there, almost every Christian cult that came, that came about in the 18th, the 18th and 19th century, Almost every one of them, even through the many of them proclaim to be Christians, they somehow twist and distill salvation down to their own works. You know, it's, it's a modern day tra- tragedy, I think, a modern day, it's a modern day tragedy that most evangelistic groups today, most of most evangelistic groups today, are those who look at evangelism as being a justifying work. They evangelize because they believe that it will merit them. Well, it will bring them merit with God. It will bring them into a better relationship with God. You know, having just returned from Asia, Lucy and I uh, saw as we went to a number of countries, a particular group in almost every single country we went to, Jehovah Witnesses. With their... uh, their, uh, literature, as they as they um, as they again waited to, and tried to engage people who walked by. Even coming back, I've seen um, as many of uh, as many of you know, I've in a, been in the process of moving to Rockdale. Even going to work this past week, I've saw I saw JWs outside Rockdale train station doing the same type of setup. And the sad thing is. Their activity puts us to shame. Their zeal or their their evangelistic efforts do put us to shame. Even through the reason why they're doing that, as well as the entirety of their theology, is rooted in damnable heresy. The same thing is of Mormonism. Mormonism is such a zealous and evangelistic 
cult. But they do so because, again, they believe that the activities that they do will warrant them a better and nearness to God, a better relationship and nearness to God. And these are just some examples. There are so many ways that people try to justify themselves through the works of their hands. The reality is people so often seek to be justified by their own activities. Even us Christians, we have a habit to fall into, well, what have I been doing by my hands? And then base what, you know, my, how good a Christian I am based on my own works as opposed to my relationship with Christ. You know, Matthew Henry, the late Puritan, uh, if you want to consider him a Puritan, he states that this, there is a proneness in professors to brag of their own performance in religion, especially if they're by anything extraordinary in them. Nay, and not only to boast of them before men, but to plead them before God and confide them as righteousness. What, what Matthew Henry's saying is that it's oh often for us to fall into a habit where we look at our own works as somehow contributing to our salvation, somehow contributing to, again, the things that we do. Because man, mankind, mankind never desires, when it comes down to it, Jesus brings freedom, but mankind will always look to justify by their own hands, their own works. And why is that? Because man, it's because mankind never, never wants to cede sovereignty. Mankind never wants to take things out of their own hands, out of, out of their own authority. And that's the thing, with true gospel Christianity, we recognize that we have no authority. We recognize that we have no sovereignty. It's all within the hands of God. And that's why, that is why Christianity is set apart, true Christianity is set apart from every other religion and cult out there. Because all of them will go, no, no, salvation is based on what you do. It's based on your works. It's based on the, the behavior and what you do. But Christianity goes, no, that's been done already. That's been done. What you need for salvation has been done. Just trust in Christ. This is why we need to remember, brothers and sisters, that we are in this new reality. What Jesus is saying here is that he's ushering in this new reality that is not reliant on works, not reliant on activities, not reliant on tradition. But again, that, and we now, here today in 2023, we are in this new reality that Jesus wrought, whereby it's his finished actions, not ours, which justify which make us right with God. Now, I want us to remember this as the first point of application from this text, that in this new economy of Christ, our works are but an outflow of faith. Our works do not justify us. We should, and we should always remember that our works never put us right with God. But the second is this. Jesus frees us from traditions. Now, that's not to say traditions are necessarily bad. Now, indeed, if they don't contradict, uh, if they don't contradict Scripture and that if they help us in our own sanctification and spiritual walks, spiritual walk, traditions can be a helpful and good thing. But we need to be careful never to let traditions become nothing more than a box-ticking exercise. 
As fasting and many other activities became in, in the time when Jesus is talking to, they became nothing more than external activities for the Jews of his day. So too there are so many activities that can become the same way for us, that we simply do just to tick a box. Again, quoting John MacArthur, he puts it this way, that there is a time when a form of praying, worshipping or serving becomes, when, sorry, when a form of praying, worshipping or serving becomes the focus of attention, it becomes a barrier to true righteousness. It can keep an unbeliever from trusting a God and a believer from faithfully obeying him. Even going to church, reading the Bible, saying grace at meals and singing hymns can become lifeless routines in which true worship of God has no part. It's so true. Sometimes we can often think that we can somehow fake it until we make it. We go into a particular situation where we do these things and we go, the heart's not there, but eventually if I do it long enough, the heart will come. But the reality is, it is better not to do these things without the heart. Because again, God desires the heart. It's better to look and contemplate on your behavior, on your character, on your walk with God, your heart for God, than simply do, do external activities. External activities will, should come as an outworking of these things. But if you're focusing on the external activities at the cost and expense of looking inwardly at your own heart, you've got your priorities the wrong way. Matthew Henry is right to note that false and formal professors often excel others in outward act, acts of devotion, even of mortification. What Matthew Henry is saying here that false believers, those who aren't really in the faith, can sometimes be the most faithful at doing external activities. So brothers and sisters, don't, do not rely on external activities. Examine one's heart first. Again, traditions are not bad, but we should never be bound by traditions for tradition's sake. If a tradition is not useful, don't do it. If it is useful, feel free to do it. Even the prayerful fasting, and I did say that I would return to this, but even prayerful fasting is not necessarily a bad thing for a Christian. Again, Jesus himself rarely fasts outside of his 40, uh, in preparation of his ministry in these 40 days in the de- desert. But Jesus here, in this, our text this morning, he does recognize that there will be a time when his disciples will fast. And as such, there are times when fasting may be appropriate. Such can be seen in the uh, book of Acts. But often it's been done solemnly and often when seeking to confirm God's will. But we need to recognize that we are not bound by God's word. Oh, sorry. I misspoke. You can stone me later. We are bound by God's word, not by traditions. So do not feel like you should, that you should be under a yoke. Do not feel that you are under a yoke that God would not have you under. God has his word. That's what binds us. That is our foundation. Traditions should not burden us. But again, 
God desires an inward, an inward faith and a contrite heart, not outward actions devoid of heart. Lastly, we, we need to be careful, and this is the third point. We need to be careful not to measure each other by our own preferred external acts. As we can see here in, in this text before us this morning, John's disciples, they measured the disciples of Jesus by their own yardstick of needed duties. How easy is it for us to conceptualize how Christians ought to live and based on our own opinion, based on our own thoughts of what Christians should do, even if it's not in Scripture, this should be the proper outworking of it based upon my own opinion, use that and place that as the yardstick onto other people. The Christians should have a particular approach. The Christians should do such regular activities and so forth. But the question is, when we benchmark, when we seek to look at and help our brothers and sisters, because, to be honest, if we are judging, and there is a room for judging in the church, hopefully we're judging with the focus of helping that brother and sister, not just judging for the sake of judging. But when we judge, when we look for a benchmark, we always need to make certain that that benchmark is a requirement of Scripture and not our own opinion. Again, to quote Matthew Henry for the last time, I think this part's particularly pertinent, where he goes, we must not judge of people's, by, of people's religion by that which falls under the eye and observation of the world. But suppose it was so that Christ's disciples did not fast so often or so long as they did. Why truly they would therefore have it thought that they had more religion in them than Christ's disciples had? Note, it is common for vain professors to make themselves a standard in religion by which to try and measure persons and things as if all who differed from them were so far in the wrong, as if that they, uh, if all they did that le- uh, the less they did, uh, sorry, as if all that did less than they did, than they did too little, and all that they did, uh, all that did more than they did too much, which is a plain evidence of their want of humility and their want of charity. Woe to us, brothers and sisters, woe to us if we place a yoke, an unnecessary yoke, on another brother and sister. I say that as strongly as I can because Jesus says it is better to be cast into the sea than to be a stumbling block to another brother and sister. Woe to us if we cause another brother and sister to stumble based on our own preferences as opposed to scripture. Woe to us if we exhort them to do things in accordance to our own opinion and then castigate them if they don't. Lest we become like the external observers of the disciples of Christ here. We need to remember that we are in a new economy. We're in a new spiritual landscape, a new spiritual reality that Jesus had come and inaugurated his kingdom 
from to which we are a part is here and to which we belong to. And this kingdom is not one that is centered on outward actions, but upon inward change. And whilst inward change will lead to outward actions, true inward change will lead indeed to outward action. The type and way and amount of actions will vary from person to person. Lest we put a yoke on one another, let us walk with charity. Let us walk with love. Let us walk with patience with one another. But let, and let us all remember that if anyone is in Christ, he is free indeed. He is a new creature, free from the enslavement of sin, free from its dominion. And that being in Christ, that we are a new creature, no longer under condemnation. I love Romans 8.1. In Jesus Christ there is no condemnation. Which means that for all of those who, who have repented and believed in him, there is no condemnation by the law. No condemnation, no, no yoke of, of traditions, no yoke of ceremony, no yoke unnecessarily added to our lives. There's freedom in Christ. We need to remember that. There is freedom in Christ. And Jesus has freed us from so many things. But only for those who have repented of their wickedness, who seek to run to him in belief and trust and seek to be comforted by him. Because the reality is for all those who have forsaken their own perceived merit, their own ragged righteousness. For someone who's forsaken all of these things and have sought to come after Christ, they will find that there is nothing which will constrain them, nothing which will burden them, but there is freeness in him for all those who come to him. So brothers and sisters, I pray that we will not be those who seek to put yokes on one another, to seek to measure properly by the, by the measurement of, and lens of Scripture, but also to be those who walk with one another with love, charity, humility, and patience, recognizing that we are not bound to simply do external activities for external activities' sake. Let's pray. Dear Blessed Father, we again thank you for the fact that we can come before your throne of grace. As individuals who need you, who need so need Christ, Father, we know that the activities and outwork, the works of our hands will never bring us into a right relationship with you. There's nothing that we could do which would merit having such a relationship but that you have done it all. We thank you for the fact that we can trust in you and that we are not bound by traditions. We are not bound by rituals or ceremony. We, can't, we, we aren't to be those who hide behind such things. But, Father, that you want the heart and only the heart. And, Father, from a true heart, a true heart which is aligned with you, yes, works will come out as a result. But, Father, help us to be those who show faith, who put faith in Christ, recognizing that there is no one else to put faith in 
No one, no one's, no other work which has been done which can save other than what Christ did upon that cross. Upon what Christ did through his life, his death, and his resurrection and ascension. Father, help us to indeed not to be trapped, not to be ensnared by any other burden or any perceived burden, but to run to Christ where there is freedom for all those who come to him. In his most blessed name. Amen. Please stand.